Hello. My name's Tapio Maseva, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 53. First, some headlines. Chancellor Rishi Sunak has said that the economy may not immediately bounce back, as the number of people claiming unemployment benefits has risen to more than 2 million for the first time since 1996. In another blow for the aviation sector, aero engine maker Rolls-Royce is to cut 9,000 jobs, nearly a fifth of its workforce, with 6,000 of those job cuts expected to be in the UK. In a follow-up from episode 46, where we spoke of Carluccio's administration, the restaurant chain has since been rescued by a new buyer, which will save 31 restaurants and 800 jobs, but close 40 sites and cut 1,000 jobs. Ashurst once again acted for Carluccio's, and Nevershed Sutherland acted for the buyer. In law firm responses, Brian Cave Leighton Paisner has laid out a five-stage return to office plan, and in a follow-up from episode 49's headline, virtually all of Denton's UK and Middle East employees have agreed to the offered four-day work week. In an odd turn for the gambling sector, punters who have not been able to bet on live sports have turned to the stock market, with US stock market brokerages seeing a surge of almost 800,000 new users over March and April. And finally, in a follow-up from episode 44, the CMA is seeking, quote, emergency time-limited legislation, end quote, to better deal with price gouging, giving special attention to, quote, holiday accommodation, weddings, and events and nurseries, end quote. If you'd like to read more on any of these headlines, links as always are in the description. This week's format is three longer reads. The first of the longer reads is that a UK top 100 firm has gone into administration. The Croydon-based consumer law firm, Macmillan Williams, or MW Solicitors, entered into a pre-pack administration. What is a pre-pack administration? We define administration in episode 47, and an abridged definition is that it is a period of potential rescue for a company, where third parties come in and gauge whether there is some way to save the company as a going concern, whether it be restructuring, selling assets, or renegotiating with creditors. Well, a pre-pack administration is to have decided that selling the assets was the best route and to have found a buyer for the assets before calling in the administrators to facilitate the purchase. So if you think about it, it is to pre-pack the assets for a sale before the actual administration takes place. Now, this pre-pack saw MW solicitors bought by another consumer law firm, Taylor Rose TTKW, with all staff being transferred as part of the acquisition. Pinsent Masons is advising the administrator for the transfer, business advisory firm Quantuma. A partner at Quantuma called this pre-pack administration the, quote, best possible outcome, end quote, for the firm, as it preserves the staff and maintains the client relationships. So, this is quite a sobering story for firms all round. We often speak of law firms advising in administrations, not entering into administration themselves. And even worse, the partner at Quantuma also called this administration the, quote, first of many, end quote, during this period, and now it's our job to figure out why that is. MW faced a number of issues, culminating with the pandemic. First of all, its sectors of practice, such as private client and real estate and buying and selling, has seen quite a pause of business. But the bigger issue has been a long lockup resulting in cash flow problems. What's that? A new phrase for the podcast. What is lockup? 
Lockup can be defined as the period between converting work in progress, usually shortened to WIP, and debtors into cash. Essentially, how long is it until a law firm is paid for the work they are currently doing or have already done? By nature of work, lockup is longer in some practice areas than others. For example, as MW is also involved in clinical negligence, litigation for such a matter or any form of litigation means the work in progress period will be longer than, say, a real estate transaction, which in itself could also take some time, meaning MW's line of work in general meant long lockup. A PwC survey conducted in 2019 found that the average lockup for firms in the UK was 131 days, or a little over four months. MW, however, had 222 days of lockup last year, a little over seven months. The biggest issue with lockup is that though a client will only pay you after seven months, the firm's overheads, such as rent or utilities, are due every month or so. Same goes with salaries for staff. And speaking of salaries for staff, lockup wasn't the only problem for MW, as they, like many firms in the UK, are a high-leverage law firm. Another new term. Leverage in this context is the ratio between non-partners to partners in a law firm. Low leverage would mean that there is a small number of associates and NQs for every partner, and high leverage means that there is a large amount of these non-partners for every partner. To oversimplify for this story, low leverage would mean less delegation for partners but in turn fewer overheads, high leverage means more delegation for partners but more overheads. The benefits of high leverage can disappear in economic downturn, as more staff means more salaries to pay, but no cash from clients means no working capital, leading to equity partners cutting their drawings or at last resort, the prepack administration we have witnessed with MW solicitors. This highlights an issue a number of firms could face at a time like this, and it's kind of been an issue we've mentioned before, just without the acknowledgement of lockup and leverage. Lockup and leverage seems to be a sector-wide issue for law firms, and has been part of the reason for the furloughs and reductions in partner drawings, both actions done with the goal of maintaining some working capital. Evidently, some firms will be unable to weather the storm. Traditional law firms especially find themselves without many options. Personally, this also brought new meaning to a story we discussed all the way back in episode 28, when we referenced Reed Smith calling their conversion to an ABS as, quote, future-proofing, end quote. At the time, though we made mention to DWF and Inscord and Dads, or what is now called the Ins Group, and their public offerings, we inferred that future-proofing was more to do with enabling the firm to become a one-stop shop for clients. And though being a one-stop shop helps separate a firm from competitors, With this story in mind, maybe a firm's ability to be owned by non-lawyers and potentially list on a stock exchange to raise funds also contributes to the so-called future-proofing. However, we should also acknowledge that potential shareholders may not be so attracted to firms with historic debt and clientele in poorly performing sectors, but it is food for thought. And, using that same reasoning, a bank may not want to loan to a traditional law firm with what could be bad debt. Back to lockup, though. As law is a relationship and service sector, firms have to ride a line of asking for their fees while attempting to maintain a working relationship with clients. So, a question for you, which if you have the answer to, I'm sure would be of great interest for many firms, is what would your solution for the lockup problem be? Is it asking for money up front? 
Is it in providing interim bills to clients? Since lockup involves work in progress, is it in trying to resolve matters more efficiently? Is there another solution you have in mind? Furthermore, this brings new answers to a question you may be asked. That question being, what issues does the pandemic bring to law firms? Beyond issues of bringing in new clients and the slowdown of new work as we've already discussed, longer lockups may become a problem as clients also face cash flow problems, which could then threaten working capital and the financial health of the firm. Credit for this story goes to Richard Simmons, MHA, PwC, and Barclays Corporate. Next up is a tech story from across the pond, which may have some global implications depending on the outcome, and it is that Amazon has been sued in California for attempting to, quote, deceive, mislead, and defraud consumers, end quote. You may be asking, what is this referring to? Well, the claimant, or plaintiff, has brought this claim against Amazon Prime Video. The plaintiff alleges that Amazon has been deceiving customers for telling them that they can purchase movies on Prime Video when in reality, Amazon reserves the right to revoke a user's access to that movie at any time. This is actually outlined in Prime Video's Terms of Service, which state that, quote, Purchased digital content will generally continue to be available to you for download or for streaming from the service, as applicable, but may become unavailable due to potential content provider licensing restrictions or for other reasons, and Amazon will not be liable to you if purchased digital content becomes unavailable for further download or streaming. End quote. So, though the button on the website says buy, and is usually a more expensive price than the rent option, a button right next to buy, one's purchase is more like a pricier rent with an indefinite term. The plaintiff's lawyers argue that regardless of the terms of service, the buy button represents to a reasonable consumer that such an ability for the platform to revoke access would not exist, therefore calling the practice deceitful. The plaintiff is attempting to turn this into a class action lawsuit for all Prime Video users, and it'll be interesting if the California court accepts it as such. So, this is a consumer law issue, a contract law issue, and an IP issue. First of all, consumer law. Upon reflection, there are a number of regulations that could be used from a UK perspective in a case like this. The 2008 Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations, or CPUT, places a general prohibition on traders from engaging in unfair commercial practices against consumers. For example, a trader cannot mislead a consumer about the nature of the sales process of an item or omit or hide material information about the delivery of the product. Furthermore, they cannot state or otherwise create the impression that a product can legally be sold when it cannot. That last point is in Schedule 1 of the CPUT and seems to be the most relevant in this instance is Amazon is not the absolute owner of the IP of the movies other than those produced by Amazon themselves, they do not necessarily have the right to sell them, only provide access to them for as long as they hold the license to present them on the platform. However, Amazon could have a counter-argument. As the Consumer Rights Act of 2015 expressly mentions the sale of digital content, and where the trader's sale of the digital content includes requiring to have what they call a processing facility for that digital content, that is Amazon Prime Video, the digital content must be available to the consumer for a, quote, reasonable time unless the time is specified in the contract, end quote. That is from Section 39 of the Act. Though in a purchase, Amazon does not disclose how much longer they have the license to that movie, the terms of service do mention that the, quote, purchased digital content will generally continue to be available to you for download or for streaming from the service as applicable, end quote. 
a court may recognize that as the reasonable time required by legislation. However, they still could be in hot water for labeling what is an indefinite renting period as a purchase. Before we go further, what do you think? Have Amazon and other online platforms been deceitful by calling these purchases, purchases? Is there a right to revoke your viewing of the movie at any time enough to make this a consumer law issue? In terms of contract law, for my own reference, I've just clicked buy on Prime Video. Of course, I ended up accidentally buying a movie, but that's neither here nor there. What is important is relatively close to the buy button is a phrase you've probably seen elsewhere. It was, quote, by ordering or viewing, you agree to our terms, end quote. You could miss it if you weren't paying attention. That's what is known as a browse wrap agreement, a form of agreeing to online terms and conditions in a purchase. Though not yet taken under consideration in English courts, U.S. courts have said that such a contract is not enforceable unless a website owner can show evidence that the user had actual or constructive knowledge of the terms. It is unlike a click wrap agreement. That is the box you tick that says, quote, I agree to the terms and conditions, end quote. As a click wrap agreement requires action from the user, they are more enforceable. Prime Video's use of a browse wrap could therefore work against them. Think of it almost like Lord Denning's Red Hand Rule from Jay Sperling and Bradshaw, which essentially requires the more unreasonable clauses to have a red hand pointing to it to give the person reading it sufficient notice. All of this may mean that in the future, more online platforms will choose click-wrap agreements, and even if they will not require full scroll in reading terms and conditions, they may write the more controversial clauses, such as the nature of the buy button in bold red font. I could definitely go on a rant about the elements of ownership in the digital age, but for now, that's all you need to know for commercial awareness. How this matter is adjudicated on could determine how future online platforms market their products and potentially give English courts an opportunity to assess browse wrap agreements. If you'd like to read the California court filing, the link is in the description. If you'd like the withheld rant about the elements of ownership in the digital age, let me know. Credit for this story goes to Elise Stanley, the CPUT, the CRA, and Jay Sperling and Bradshaw. And finally, let's follow up on the EasyJet story with a bit more context as well. In ending last week's episode, we spoke of the EasyJet saga, an extraordinary general meeting called by shareholder and founder Sir Stelios Hagioanu. That vote was held yesterday, but let's bury the lead about the outcome and provide a quick summary. First of all, in case you missed last week's story, Sir Stelios was unhappy with EasyJet Director's £4.5 billion order for planes from Airbus, as he believed that the deal would, quote, drive EasyJet into insolvency by December 2020, end quote. However, it's worth noting that the Airbus order is from 2013 and holds no force majeure clause for pandemics. We also found it important to note that in the midst of this order, EasyJet had also secured a £600 million loan from the UK Treasury's Emergency Coronavirus Fund. That's its colloquial name, but formally it's called the COVID Corporate Financing Facility. With these two transactions, Sir Stelios was dissatisfied with the director's actions and called for a general meeting, with resolutions on the table to have four directors, including CEO Johan Lundgren and Chairman John Barton, removed. Yesterday, EasyJet's Chairman John Barton told shareholders at a virtual shareholders meeting that Sir Stelios's resolutions to have the directors removed had been defeated, 
with more than 50% of the voting shareholders voting in favor of standing by the directors. Cerys Delios has voiced displeasure with the result, but this story has given us an opportunity to mention two legal developments. Firstly, since the 1st of March, the government suspended rules on wrongful trading. Wrongful trading is an offense only directors can commit, which occurs at the insolvent winding up or administration of a company found in the Insolvency Act of 1986. If an administrator sees that a director knew or ought to have known that there was no reasonable prospect for the company to have remained solvent before the commencement of administration or insolvency proceedings, the administrator can apply for a court order requiring a director to be personally liable to make a financial contribution to the company's assets. As Sir Stelios's initial fear was EasyJet being insolvent by December, at least until the 30th of June, no directors of any companies can be accused of wrongful trading. This means that directors have more freedom to try save the companies they work for than they usually would. An acknowledgement by the government that these times call for unique solutions, and potentially an effort by them to avoid too many administrations. However, the suspension on wrongful trading may also mean that by the time administrators are called, it may be less likely to rescue companies as a going concern. This could lead to less restructuring work for firms, and even more job losses. It's also worth noting that wrongful trading and fraudulent trading are not the same. Though wrongful trading is suspended, fraudulent trading is not, and that is, in a sentence, an offense that can be committed by more than just the directors, which is to carry on the business of a company with the intent to defraud the company's or any other person's creditors for any fraudulent purpose. Furthermore, considering the £600 million loan taken by EasyJet, this past week, the Treasury announced that companies that take more than £50 million from the Large Business Interruption Loan Scheme will be banned from paying cash bonuses to executives and dividends to shareholders. Though this scheme is different to the loan facility EasyJet took from, this change by the UK Treasury was done with the intent to ensure that companies do not profit from the loans and instead use them as a means to survive during the crisis. It is up to the company's lawyers to ensure that the companies do not breach the terms of the loans they receive, at risk of penalties such as being required to pay the loans back immediately. But beyond that, these two legal developments illustrate the Balancing Act of Section 172 of the Companies Act 2006. That section is the director's duty to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its shareholders. The suspension on wrongful trading gives directors a little more freedom than usual to promote the company's success but could backfire if administration or winding up is left late. And as for the ban on dividends, this means that the most direct benefit to shareholders is put on hold for companies that require loans, as the long-term success of the company is prioritized. And, as for Sir Stelios, what's next? Even if he believes that the Airbus order was fraudulent, the civil claim must be brought by an administrator, and the criminal claim's mental aspect presents a high hurdle. As the directors brought third-party accountants to assess the order, it is unlikely that intent to defraud the creditors can be found. Otherwise, he could, under Section 994 of the Companies Act, petition to the court that the company's affairs are being conducted in a matter unfairly prejudicial to him as a shareholder. However, the remedy for this is often an order by the court that the company or other shareholders buy the complaining shareholder's shares. As Sir Stelios is the founder, I don't think that is a solution he'd want. Finally, he could bring a derivative claim, 
which is to bring a claim on behalf of the company that a director or directors were negligent, breached trust, defaulted, or breached their duties as directors. This is under Section 260 of the Companies Act. However, the court will reject the continuation of a derivative claim if such a claim is contrary to the success of the company or if the act the shareholder is against has already been authorized by the company. As EasyJet's directors have managed to raise a £3.3 billion cash pile according to the Financial Times, and shareholders have voted on and kept the directors in their roles, the court may see these two facts as enough reason to dismiss a derivative claim. But Sir Stelios's lawyers may still attempt to pursue it, as a potential remedy is an injunction preventing directors from acting in the way that was in breach. But, with all of this considered, the odds seem a bit stacked for EasyJet's founder and activist shareholder. It will be interesting to follow this story in the background to see if there are any more major developments, but that should be it. For now, at least. Regardless, this has allowed us to speak of two significant legal developments and potential shareholder actions, all relevant for corporate law, insolvency law, and banking and debt finance law. Credit for this story goes to the BBC, Simon Foy, the Companies Act, and the Insolvency Act. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description, and the podcast Instagram page is at comawarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to contact me there, or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast, where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes, and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you will hear from me next week.